you'll stand with me for our scripture reading this morning. This is from James 4, 13 through 16 and 5, 1 through 11. It says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's great to see you. We are in uh, about the eighth or ninth week in a long study in the book of James. And so if you've been with us for, for some time, you know that James uh, has some challenges for us. He has some challenging words this morning. Uh, in fact, he, he has the audacity today to challenge the idea that we are in control of our lives. I remember a, a few years ago, one of my favorite writers, Malcolm Gladwell, wrote this book called Outliers. Uh, and it's this great book where, where he outlines all of the, the luck, all of the, the chance all, all of these random circumstances that have come together in the lives of people who have become incredibly successful. So, for example, uh, you know of Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates dropped out of college, um, started Microsoft, became the wealthiest person in the world. But did you know Bill Gates, uh, his parents were ultra-wealthy, and they sent him to this elite private school in Seattle, one of the most expensive schools on the entire West Coast. In this particular school, in 1968, they bought this early supercomputer that was called the ASR-33. And so this was one of like two or three supercomputers in the entire country, and it was at this K-12 through elite private school in Seattle where Bill Gates just happened to be a student. And so Gates was given unlimited access to this incredible computer at a time when most universities couldn't even afford one. In high school, he was at the same school, but a nearby company, this, this computer startup, was trying to figure out how to auto-generate like payroll statements, which seems like super easy, but it's 1970-something, and they couldn't figure out how to do it, so they, they let this computer class at the high school 
give it a try. And so Bill Gates and his friends would just play around on this program. And by the time uh, he was in the middle of high school, he was allowed to drop all of his other classes and simply play around on this computer all day long. He had access to the University of Washington's computer, and so he would go there every night from 3 to 6 a.m. and work on a computer. And so that by the time that he graduated from high school, he estimates that he had over 10,000 hours of computer programming experience, which is probably more than anybody else in the entire world. And so Bill Gates, he, he says it himself in an interview, he said, you know, th there's this sequence of lucky events that led to his developments. He said, all of these things came together. I had better exposure to software development at a young age than I think anyone else in the world in that period of time, and all because of an incredibly lucky series of events. And so, of course, Bill Gates is like super smart, really hardworking guy. But the point that Gladwell makes in his book is that our success in work depends on a thousand factors that are totally beyond our control. Now, this is kind of a controversial statement in America because we like to believe that, that our, our lives are completely in our control. Our work is completely under our control. If we are successful, it's because we have figured something out and, and worked hard and done right. And if we fail, it is completely our responsibility. Gladwell makes the case in all of these different examples that that is simply not true. So much of our lives are out of our control. Now, it's not just our work. Uh, the, the childhood that we grow up in, the culture that we're born into, the education that we get at an early age or we don't get at an early age, the spouse that we choose, the, the parents uh, that, we, that we have, the children that are born to us as parents, our friendships, our work, whether or not our industry grows or not, there are a thousand things in our life that are utterly beyond our control. And what happens if, if we don't realize this, the first problem is that if things go really well for us, we think it's because we figured it out. We can become prideful. We can, we can boast in our accomplishments as though we did what nobody else could do. At the same time, if, if things don't go our way, if we're not successful, we feel like we have failed. We feel like we are a failure. We put all the weight of failure onto our shoulders simply when we often haven't had the the, the, the opportunities and the breaks that others have gotten at the same time. And so James comes in, this, this message in, in the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, James is so practical, it's so important. And James, he challenges this entire idea that our lives are under our control. In particular, he's saying that we think we're in control of our lives, but it's an illusion, it's, it's foolishness. It's not reality, it's, it's detached from reality to think that you have that much control in your life. And it's actually a good thing that you don't. It's actually a good thing that you don't have total control over your life. And so James is going to invite us to give up our lives completely to God and, and to discover in Christ and in community life as it was meant to be, life in the full. And so this is one of the hardest passages. I think it's the hardest, most challenging, most provoking passage in the book of James, maybe in the entire New Testament. I think it's the new millennial version that's, you know, it's just like filled with fire emojis throughout the whole passage. It's not true. It doesn't exist. But these words are so, so hard. But, but it's not hard, and James isn't coming at us. Like, I don't know if you've seen two elementary school boys get in a fight, especially if they're brothers, where they're just like wailing at each other with like fists and whatever they can hit each other with. 
It, it's not that kind of, of hard. It's, it's more like a, like a surgery. It's, it's more like a doctor makes a, a diagnosis of this disease that we didn't even know was going on deep within us. And not only that, he brings us test results that say, look, this is going on inside of you. You may not have known it, but here's the evidence right here. And now that we know that there's a problem within you, now we can bring about a cure. Now there's a solution. We can work together to get you healthy again. James is is so surgical. He's so precise in convicting us of sin, and he, he never leaves us alone, but he gives us a solution every time. And so there's three big components in this passage. We're going to move right through the text. James shows us the diagnosis, the first thing, the the test, the test results, that's the second thing, and then the cure, that's the third thing. And so the first thing is the diagnosis. The beginning of our passage is chapter 4, verse 13. James says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen. What is your life? You are a mist that is here for a little while and then vanishes. And so right from the jump, these challenging words, and it sounds like James is is condemning planning, like if you're strategically planning what you're doing, but that's that's not really the heart of it. In fact, the Bible is incredibly pro planning. The Proverbs are full of encouragements to plan wisely. Jesus himself said to, to count the cost before you start the work. And so the Bible is not against planning, and James is not really against planning. But the key word comes in verse 16. He says, As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And so the problem, it's not the making of plans, it's the posture of the heart. These businessmen are boasting in their own abilities to make money, to to come and go in different places, to be successful, to to control their life and to control the lives of others around them. And so the problem is boasting, but even that is not the deepest problem. Even that is, is not the real disease within us. I think the best phrase, a writer calls it, the life control illusion. Our biggest problem we can call the life control illusion. It's an illusion to think that we are in control of our lives. It's detached from reality. Now, this is an especially challenging word in America where our whole culture is, is built on radical individualism. It's, it's been on, built on our ability to, to prove ourselves, to lift ourselves up, to advance ourselves. We've been, been swimming in these waters since we were born. And so we've been told our, our entire lives, especially depending on how old you are, you can be whatever you want to be. Don't let anybody tell you you can't accomplish it, whatever it is. You can change the world. The future is in your hands. And yet it's an illusion. It's, it's foolishness in the biblical sense to believe this because it's detached from reality and it leads you to make destructive choices. All of the ancient wisdom is, it's like it's calling BS on our culture. Like, this is not true, and it's damaging if you believe it. We are in control of so little. Again, the family we're born into, no control. The culture we're born into, no control. Our education, our work, 
I mean, I, I, I just think about marriage. You know, my wife and I just uh, a couple months ago celebrated 14 years of marriage. If you know my wife, you know that she's wonderful. I think we have an incredible marriage. But if you think about it, marriage is so out of your control, like how your spouse develops and, and grows and becomes wiser and more mature or doesn't grow and become more mature. For the most part, that's out of your control, right? If you think about it, like we look back on our 22-year-old selves and are like, what were we thinking? We barely knew each other. Like I didn't even get facial hair until like four years later. Things have worked out incredibly well for us, but if we're being honest, like marriage is the ultimate roll of the dice. Like you find somebody, you love them, they love the Lord, it's as good as you're going to get, let's go for it. I'm pro-marriage, I'm pro-getting married when you're young, but you have such little control. You love your spouse and you do everything you can, but you can't control their heart. The children that are born to you, their physical health, their emotional well-being, so much of that is outside of your control. You can be the best parent, the most righteous Christian parent in the world, and your child could still live far from Christ every minute of their life. You can make all the best decisions in your work, and still at the end of your life, you could end up poor and alone. And so what is James' wisdom for this? He says in verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. We ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will go and do this business. If the Lord wills, we will will thrive and, and, and find good things. If the Lord wills. James is saying, you are not in control of your life. And that's good news because God is. God is in control of your life and that's the best possible thing. And that's, that's what this verse means. It doesn't mean like if somebody says, you know, are you good for that meeting tomorrow at one? And they're like, well, if the Lord wills. Did you finish painting your bedroom? Are you doing that tomorrow? Well, if the Lord wills. It's like, no, stop that. It's not what it's saying. No, it's, it's advocating an, an entire lifestyle, a posture of trust in God because we are not in complete control of our lives. James is always trying to get under the surface. Jesus is always trying to get under the surface. He's trying to get to our hearts. And he wants to show us that trusting in ourselves and our careers and our marriages and our social connections, trusting in our own cleverness and abilities, trusting anything other than the amazing grace and the unmerited love of God is complete foolishness. It will just lead to destruction in the end. And so I think how much of my anxiousness comes because my my life control illusion is falling apart. How much of my discouragement in life, how much of the, the anger that boils up within me is because I can see the life control illusion and, and, and it's falling apart and there's nothing I can do about it. How often do we fail to get involved in the, the lives of other people, especially if they're in a lower position in life and society than us? How might we neglect the poor and needy because we thought we have earned our way up here and they haven't? All because of this life control illusion. That's the diagnosis that James makes in our life. And so how do you know? How do you know if you're living According to this life, according to the life control illusion, that's the second thing. That's, that's the test. It's like James is handing us test results to say, this is where you're at. This is what supports the diagnosis. 
Chapter 5 begins like this. Now listen, you, which if you notice was how he began chapter 4, verse 13. It's actually in the Greek. It's this really strong phrase. Now listen, you. It's like James has his finger right between our eyes and he's saying, now listen, you. Like it's almost like calling a curse down on somebody. He says, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Gold and silver have been corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And so this is the test, the the way to know If you are still following the life control illusion, it's by how you spend and use your money. James is saying there's there's a test to know if you think you're really in control of your life, and it's how you use your money. And James, he he goes on to say, verses 4 through 6, that if you live by this life control illusion, it's going to lead you to do some really destructive things. He gives three examples. He says the first thing that can happen is selfish business practices. Verse 4, look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. In other words, if we have success in life and we don't realize that it's an incredible gift, if we think that we have earned it, then we might be tempted to hoard wealth, to not share our profits, to not help others. The second thing is verse 5, that we might, uh, we might practice self-indulgence. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. So he's saying those who think they're entirely in control of their lives, they see everything that they earn, everything that they can accumulate as entirely their own, which means that they just want to accumulate more and more. They want to spend it on themselves, a bigger home, a nicer car, better vacations, elite education for their kids. And the third thing that the life control illusion leads to is unjust systems. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not even opposing you. James is saying because you think that your decisions direct everything in life, because you think you are in control of your life, you have actually contributed to the oppression of those who weren't even seeking to harm you at all. The way you've used your money, the way you've run your business, whatever it is, you've contributed to the oppression of others. Now, if this is your first time here and you're like slowly backing towards the door, uh, if you're not a Christian and you're like, this is incredibly overwhelming, like there's like rotting, you know, flesh and like it's unbelievably hard. You might think preachers are, are always talking about money. They're always just trying to get money out of us. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think what's going on is that the New Testament is continually talking about money. Jesus talks about money and possessions almost more than any other topic in the Gospels. But it's interesting, for as much as Jesus talks about money, he never really gives us super clear directions on on how to use it. He doesn't explicitly say that we have to tithe or to give more or to give a little bit less. He doesn't tell us exactly how much to save versus how much to trust others. The specifics aren't really there because he's always going for our heart. 
He talks about money because he knows it's the ultimate test of where our hearts are at. I think of Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector who came and he experienced a single meal with Jesus. And the Lord didn't put any demands on him, didn't command him to do anything. But Zacchaeus, on his own, decided that he would give away a vast portion of his money. Decided that he would go and find everybody he had ever wronged and repay them fourfold. Simply because he had met the Lord and had a changed heart. The way to know that you're not living by the life control illusion, it's, it's to be generous with everything you have, everything you're given. If you truly trust God, if Christ has fully gotten a hold of your heart and, and remade it from the inside out, you will become radically generous. If you understand that your entire life is a gift, that you could have had a far more difficult upbringing, a, a much worse education, gotten into a field of work that didn't do as well as it did, if you would have had a marriage that fell apart or lost a child or, or a thousand other horrible things could have happened to you, if you have that perspective and you trust God, it changes the way you look at money and possessions. It makes you far more open-handed, far more generous. The people I've gotten to know that are radically generous, they understand this. They understand that nothing that they have is truly theirs. And so they can give freely. They can give creatively. They actually live at a lower lifestyle. They buy a smaller house or drive an older car so that they can give more away. They might live at a drastically lower income or take a job that, that's more strategic in the kingdom, all because of a changed heart in the Lord. This is the test. And it's, it's interesting this week, I had this conversation with my oldest son. Our boys are in... Uh, in Kansas City with grandparents today. Um, but I was talking with my oldest son, and he's going to a birthday party for a kid, one of his friends. Um, and I think it's because the, we live in a neighborhood that's like on the very low end of a really wealthy elementary school district. And that means most of their friends have a lot more money than we do. But he's going to this birthday party, and you know he overhears that all the other kids are taking like $80, and they're going to the mall. And he's like, how much money can I take to the mall? I'm like, how much do you have? And he's like, nothing. And I'm like, I don't have $80 right now. I can't just, uh, you know, and so we have this whole back and forth and what's going on in his heart is that I don't want to be the one kid there that doesn't have money. I don't want to be the kid there that has the least money. And then in my heart, I'm going, I don't want my kid to be like the one kid there that hasn't brought enough. I don't want him to like have to get like charity from the parents or the other kids like I mean, that's happening in my heart. And so we're talking, and I ask him, you know, well, what is it that you want to buy? And I love this. He said, I don't know, but I need to have it. <laughs> Which is like all of us, right? But what is it that you really want with your money? I don't know. I just know that I need to have it. From, a, from an early age, our social connections, our friendship, our, our status in the community, it matters so much to us. We have this deep fear or an insecurity that we're not in control. It's such a good test of what's going on in our hearts. But if you think about it, it, it makes perfect sense. It makes complete sense why, why money would be so important to us, why our possessions, why our status in the world, why our, our social connections would matter so much to us. 
it really is the most important thing in life if this life is all there is. Like money is the most important factor if this world is the only one that exists. If this life is the only one that we have. James says, chapter 5, verse 3, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Verse 14, chapter 4, he says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James is, is begging us. He's saying, don't worry so much about this short, fleeting life. You are not in control. You're not even here that long. He's saying the, the end is coming. It's near. And because we don't know when it's coming, it means every single day needs to be lived as if, as if the end could happen at any moment. Like, a, like your breath on a cold October morning when you breathe out and you can see the mist for a moment and then it's gone. James says that's what your life is like. His diagnosis is our, our detached from reality, life control illusion. The test is how we use our money. And so what's the cure? What's our hope after all these strong words that he's given us? Chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. James has told us twice in one passage that the end is near and that life is short. And so now he tells us twice in the same passage the good news that the Lord is indeed coming back. That the end of our days is, is not really an ending at all, but it's a glorious new beginning. And that this world is not all there is, and so that changes everything. James calls us back to these Old Testament examples. He says, brothers and sisters, verse 10, as an example of your patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. It's a lot like Hebrews 11 where, where the author is calling us back to these Old Testament examples. Saying, if you want to know how to live in light of eternity, you have to look back to those who have come before you. Hebrews 11 says, all these people, the, the heroes of the Old Testament, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews, James, Jesus, they're all calling us to look forward to the city that's been prepared for us. All of James's warnings about the life control illusion, about the way that we spend and use our money, they only make sense in the context of the Lord's return, of the good news of the gospel that we have, that this life is not all there is, that Christ is risen, and that Christ 
is returning. And so if you think about it, it's an incredible message because James is not saying stop focusing on your joy and happiness. Like stop enjoying your money and possession so much. You need to give it away, get it together, and be a holy person. It's not what he's saying at all. He's actually saying if you want real joy, if you want real peace, real satisfaction in this life, and glory in the life to come, then you have to recognize that you are not in control. You have to give yourself entirely to God. He's saying don't settle for the little fragile earthly trinkets of life, money and possessions and status and whatever else. He's saying go for glory. Go for the real and lasting glory that's being held out before you by our Lord. He's saying give yourself fully to the kingdom of God that has already established victory over all of these kingdoms of the world. And so, as we're closing up, three quick things, three points of application. How do, we, how do we put this into our lives right now? The first thing is to examine. Examine your life. Now think of this like a, a test. Examine your life. Look at your plans. Look at the way you've used your money. Look at your schedule. Does all this reflect an eternal perspective? What does it say about who's in control of your life? What does it say about where your hope and your trust is? Again, over 13, 14 years in ministry, I've gotten to see so many incredible people whose lives have been, have been changed and who have become radically generous, whose lifestyles have been totally upended, not because they feel like they had to, but because they simply were so deeply affected by the gospel that they, they sold their new car and got an old one. They downsized their house. They, they cashed out an, an investment to do something incredible in the community. When you begin to see people whose, whose hearts are on fire for the Lord and all they want to do is use all of their resources and all of their connections to help other people. Examine your life. Think of it like the blood work that you're getting. What does it show about your heart? What symptoms condemn you? What lifestyle changes do you need to make to get your heart healthy again? And so examine your life. The second thing is to make decisions in community. I think this is one of the most important things because the Bible isn't so specific on all the details of how much to give and how much to save and where to spend your money. That's why we have each other. It's so important to make these decisions in community. And we can avoid so many mistakes simply by asking for help and for wisdom, and counsel, and perspective. This happens often in our community group when somebody says, I've, I've been given a new job opportunity, or, or we're considering moving to another city. Would you all help us make this decision? Will you help and walk with me through this process? Maybe it's a, a big purchase. Maybe it's, it's a career change. But if you bring that before other people, it will protect you from making a lot of mistakes that you may regret later on. So make decisions in community. And then third, daily, every single day, work to remember the gospel. Every day, try to remember God's love for you poured out in Christ. It's the only thing that changes your hearts. It's the only thing that will, will change how you live on this earth. It's the only thing that sets a trajectory for your eternal life. One of the last verses we read, 5.11, the Lord is full 
of compassion and mercy. Reflect every day in your prayers on God's love for you expressed in Jesus. Reflect on on the fullness of compassion and mercy that's being offered to you through Jesus Christ. Consider his life on earth. If, If anybody has ever on earth had an eternal perspective, it's Jesus, right? Like he knew eternity. And so when he came to spend time on this earth, he did so with an eternal perspective. As a result, everything he did was done from the lens, from the perspective of eternity. As a result, he came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't come into Jerusalem on like the nicest chariot available, but like on a donkey. Even when he was put on trial, even when he was arrested, he could have put on a demonstration of his power and his strength, and yet he didn't. When he was in the garden just before his arrest, when the full weight of this world's brokenness was on his shoulders and he was sweating drops of blood, even then he said, if the Lord wills, not my will be done, but your will, O Lord. When they hung him on the cross and they they mocked him and said, if you are the son of God, come down, take control of your life. Even then, he was patient. And it's all because he knew what he had come to do. To die for our sins. To to enter into death from within and to conquer it from the inside out. And then rising again with, with the keys of life and death in his hands to freely give out eternal life to anyone who calls on his name. He knew why he was on earth. He had an eternal perspective and it changed everything that he did. And this is the good news of Christianity. That this eternal one, he became mortal so that we mortal ones could become eternal. He gave his eternal life becoming mortal so that we mortal ones would receive this eternal life that we haven't earned but is freely given to us by Christ. And so James is saying, don't put your your hope, don't put your boast in the things of this world. It will only let you down. Your life is a breath here for a moment and then gone. But if you boast, there's this great line in Jeremiah 9. If you boast in anything, boast in this, that you know the steadfast love of the living God. Let's pray.